Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Esme Murphy with you along with producer Jonathan Lowe and one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, and Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. Well, listen, we have been talking uh, this past half hour about the remarkable series of events that have occurred with the uh, U.S. taking action and assassinating uh, General Soleimani, as well as other top Iraqi and Iranian officials in that strike. Your take on this, because and we just finished talking with um, – a couple of experts, including Tom Gutierrez, the former dean of Middle Eastern Studies at University of Nebraska, he said he was shocked by this. I was shocked also by this, in this, but in the sense that the Trump administration, or at least at least Donald Trump, um, is, is 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 facing a challenge. And the challenge is, is after we pulled out of the Iranian nuclear agreement about a year ago, um, for a while Iran. Was, was playing, let's say, relatively conservative politics, trying to keep a coalition of, um, of people together of, um, by, by not really sort of you know, aggravating anything. But it's now restarted its nuclear program. Um, it shot down, or rather it shot missiles into Saudi Arabia. And the United States is sort of stuck in the Trump administration, is that it's seeing the acceleration of Iran's influence. It's seeing the acceleration of the nuclear program. Um, it's also seeing Iran support Hezbollah and a few other terrorist organizations. And so, so I think the Trump administration didn't have a lot of other options at this point, And this becomes, I think, partly the reason for, for the strike that they did. Uh, and in, in terms of, you know, what happens next, I think nobody seems to know, but there does seem to be amongst experts, including the two ones we just talked to, there does seem to be the widespread belief that there will, in fact, the Iranians will, in fact, follow through and that there will be some form of major retaliation. What I mean, and there are obviously those people who are concerned about seeing this escalate into possibly an all-out war. Uh, is that something that, that you see as well? I do. And, and here are some possibilities for where I think the escalation could occur. One possibility is going to be right in Iraq because we have um, the – infiltration um, of, of Iran into many of the organizations in Iraq, and we have U.S. troops that are there. So I would expect that to be one. Two, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw yet another um, effort to launch missiles against Saudi Arabia. Three, again, I mentioned Hezbollah before, um, and since Iran is supporting them, there could very well be coordination with them um, in some type of attack, either through Israel or against the United States. But the point being is that I think Iran has lots of possibilities for for where it can sort of step next, and it may not happen today or tomorrow, um, but I think most people are certain that something is going to happen short of a direct military conflict or, or direct military attack against the United States. And in terms of, you know, possibly, you know, what's going on both, you know, domestically as well as internationally, I mean, 
in terms of what the president is facing, you've got that impeachment trial looming and some of his fiercest critics are saying, well, the president did this in order to distract from that. It's hard to believe that that is actually the case uh, because of, of the drastic implications of this. But certainly people are talking about this as opposed to impeachment. Well, they are. I was going to say is that you might recall back in 1998 when Clinton was facing impeachment, he launched um, strikes against Iran, and which basically became the the premise. Remember the movie Wag the Dog, um, right? And and I'm hearing in the last few days, you're probably hearing it also too. That is this Wag the Dog, the sequel, or something like that. Now. Whether that is the case or not, that is, I think, a matter of debate. But there's no question of the fact that in the last 72 hours, discussion of impeachment has has somewhat faded from, from the headlines. But what this now suggests is think of three stories that are now converging. If the first two stories were impeachment, rather in the, this is the, the, the looming Senate trial on impeachment charges and the 2020 election, now add to that possible... Um, um, war with Iran, or let's just say significant escalation with Iran, we've got three different major events or stories that are converging together. And that makes it for a fairly unpredictable, you know, sort of cocktail in terms of how it's all going to play out. In terms of um, the president, you know, he is he has said that that he did this in order to prevent a war, not to start one. And he has campaigned in 2016 very successfully. He won, saying he wanted to get us out of endless wars. It does seem with 3,000 troops headed to the region because of this situation that we are really in danger of slipping back into one. Well, we are. And keep in mind that he, the president is trying to pull troops out of both Syria and pull troops out of Afghanistan at the same time. And now we have this shifting of troops over into into the Middle East you know, to defend against potentially you know, further escalation with Iran. Um, it certainly does look like at this point that we're not going to see any any significant de-escalation in Middle East tensions, and that the president is walking to exact walking into exactly what he said he wanted to avoid, which is yet another conflict. I think you know this all comes back to the again the decision to pull out of the Iranian um, nuclear accords because once we did that, it was impossible not to expect that there would be some type of retaliation for however good or however bad those accords were. What they did was to at least buy some time and buy some some stability between the United States and Iran um, for perhaps several years. And and once we pulled out of those that, that agreement, you had to expect at some point that Iran was going to take action or retaliate in some way. And so this is really just a continuation of of of, of really I think is a contradictory set of rhetoric that Trump had from 2016. Contradictory rhetoric saying that he wanted to pull out of the Iran and nuclear accords and and make sure Iran didn't become a nuclear power. At the same time, he wanted to ensure or say that we were going to pull out of our Middle East engagements. Those were contradictory messages, and they're really coming into collision right now. Right. And the other thing is the president – I mean no one has been more critical of the own, of his own intelligence establishment conclusions mm-hmm. and analysis than this president right. at, at so, time and time again. Yet 
he says he is following the recommendations of that same intelligence establishment. Well, and that's, and that will become interesting here because that's sort of what's being said right now. What we don't know um, is to what extent this is actually accurate. Um, and, and this is where you normally would be having now what? The consultation with Congress, which did not occur before the strike, and B, you would oftentimes post-strike like this, you would have hearings in Congress to evaluate and determine what, in fact, the intelligence community said. And there very well could be, on the one hand, the military could have said that, yes, um, given where he's located, it is possible um, to take him out, given possibly where um, where we are, let's say militarily, this might have made sense. But from a larger political perspective, it might not have made sense in terms of doing this. And again, this is one of the things that probably the House and the Senate and um, Foreign Intelligence Committees are going to have to evaluate in terms of what's going on. But also keep in mind that the president has significantly crippled um, the, the intelligence community over the last three years. So regarding how good the information was they provided him also is, is questionable. Well, although the, the the intelligence information that that guy was landing on that plane, uh, well, that was accurate. Yeah, that was accurate well, as that, heck. That, that was that was deadly accurate. Pardon you know, the pun there, but it's absolutely correct. But again, whether or not it made sense to say right. let's take him, let's take him out um, um, is a different question entirely because most of the analysts who are the experts and most of the world is saying that this was a hugely destabilizing action to essentially what? To assassinate um, not a leader, but certainly a significant um, significant leader of a foreign country. Right. As opposed to, um, you know, and I think it's interesting that people have drawn the distinction uh, between um, al-Baghdadi and Osama bin Laden, who were not leaders of a nation, but they were leaders of a terrorist organization. Here you, you, you've got a, a nation that, that's involved. It, I, I think a lot of people are just you know, kind of going, how, what happens next? How is this going to affect – obviously, we are in the middle of an election. That yeah. is, we're hurtling towards uh, you know, the, the, the Iowa caucuses. We're hurtling towards the Democratic primaries. Obviously, the president is going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, you've seen uh, all the Democrats basically say – in essence, the same thing. This was a bad guy. This was somebody who was terrible. Obviously, two previous presidents, George W. Bush and President Obama, had considered trying to take this guy out and decided not to because they felt it would be, as you, the word you used, too destabilizing and too dangerous and too consequential for the U.S. and its allies. But what what are the implications as we move forward here uh, in this very critical time as, as voters are trying to figure out who should be the next president of the United States or if President Trump should get another four more years? Well, sort of two observations. First, for those of us who are old enough to remember this, um, some of this reminds me of of 1979 and the Iranian hostage crisis and where the basically the, the Carter presidency got was brought down in the election in part because of the administration's inability to be able to address the hostage situation uh, involving Iran and I don't know how this is going to play out for example you know if again if we get involved in a in a military conflict um, do we 
Is it possible that there will be hostages taken? Now, remember, of course, there is no U.S. embassy in Iran now, so that's not the issue. But but it wouldn't be impossible for a U.S. embassy um, in in Iraq to be stormed or people. Well, it, it almost was. Almost was exactly exactly, and and so so so. So if, if history means anything, and sometimes um, it does and sometimes it doesn't, um, this, this could remind many people of, of how, again, a previous president was brought down by conflict with Iran. And keep in mind also Iran is very different than Iraq, um, very different than, let's say, Syria or Afghanistan. This is an enormously large country um, you know, with you know, tens of millions of people um, more than we saw with, you know, than, than Iraq or Afghanistan. And so a, a, any kind of a skirmish there um, is going to be dangerous. And as we learned a few months ago, um, we, were, we were surprised as a country regarding how accurate their missiles were when they took out some of those Saudi Arabian oil facilities. So having said all of that, um, this, this now becomes with what now is what, 29 days before the Iowa caucuses, um, this now becomes a, a, a major issue going into the Iowa caucuses in terms of how it factors, as you pointed out, the different candidates who are going to be debating as early as this, what, this coming week in Iowa, but also how does this affect voters in terms of what they're looking at. And I suspect we're going to see, which is typical of what we've seen for the last few years, a a partisan breakdown. I, I suspect the initial polls will be that Trump supporters support what he did, Democrats um, oppose what he did, and there's going to be the independents who are going to break down, I'm going to guess, mostly against um, the actions that are there, but a certain percentage will support and love a certain percentage who are going to be what? Just not sure. So I think we're going to see the typical partisan reaction to this as we've seen for almost everything else. Right. And, and I think I think that that is definitely a, a good bet there. Um, obviously, we are getting very close. It is less than a month to the Iowa caucuses. You've got a major debate coming up on January 14th. Um, it's actually it's interesting. There's a debate in Iowa on January 14th uh, in Des Moines. I believe it's at Drake University uh-huh. where I think they've already had one. Uh, but on that very same day, uh the president has chosen to make an appearance in Wisconsin. He'll be speaking in the Milwaukee area at a, at a campaign rally. Uh, makes you think that, that we are appreciated in terms of this region, that, that, that people are not overlooking us That's right. uh, this time around. No, you're right. I mean, in many ways, um, you know, I've done this analysis. Um, I know a few other people have done this. Wisconsin may be the state that determines the election. And we've heard that again and again. And is that simply because, once again, they are a swing state? I mean, you've written a book on swing states. uh, And and they were the swing state that uh, so many people did not expect to swing for President Trump. And they did in 2016. They did, yeah. calculations that I did, I can't remember if I sent them to you a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago I did the calculations. Okay, Wisconsin has 10 electoral votes. If you take Wisconsin out of the equation, I have the election right now with Democratic candidate with 268 electoral votes, with a Republican candidate, Donald Trump, 260. You need 270 electoral votes to win the election. Um, and this is assuming, by the way, that Democrats still do take um, Minnesota. And if and right now, my calculation is is that Donald Trump wins a second term in the Electoral College, 270 to 268. 
By winning Wisconsin. By winning Wisconsin, and 270 is the bare minimum. But to show you how close this can be at this point is that if we keep in mind that occasionally we get what's called the faithless elector who switches, or keep in mind that Nebraska and the state of Maine don't allocate all or nothing, um, play with us a little bit. Um, I am not ruling out scenarios in this election that it could be, what, 269, 269, and it goes to the U.S. House of Representatives to pick the next president of the United States. Wow. Okay. Um, Because that's, in other words, those electors, you never think of it, they actually are casting votes in that electoral college process. If it's that close, uh, are they bound? Are they not bound? And again, you've got these two states that, that do it proportionally. I mean, that's, that's an interesting scenario. You actually think that, that could, this could be the year, perhaps, that, that that could happen? It could happen. We haven't had Congress pick a president since the, I think, the 1880s, where it got resolved there. Um, I don't think it's inconceivable. I mean, I think Donald Trump's going to lose the popular vote. I mean, that seems pretty clear when you look at the big, heavy Democratic states like California and New York. Um, the Democratic candidate's going to rack up large, large numbers there. But I think it's going to really come down to uh, it's the race for 270, the Electoral College, and it's it's conceivable. Now, just so people start to hear it here first, if it does, if, if no candidate gets a majority of the electoral vote, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's happened a couple of times, the House of Representatives picks the President of the United States, but it's the House of Representatives that would be elected this coming November, which means the House would, the, the incoming House would do this. And now to make it more interesting is that when the vote occurs in the House of Representatives, it's not where each House member gets one vote. States vote as a delegation, um, which means um, if you have a state that's... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, so Minnesota has to vote as a delegation. They have to vote well, as Minnesota, a delegation. Minnesota's yeah. delegation is pretty split. Right, right. And so if it was split down the middle... Um, Let's say actually right now it's what is, is it? It is three. It's five three if I remember correctly, isn't Correct. it? Correct. It, we have five Democrats and three Republicans. Right. Uh, you do have the interesting situation with Colin Peterson though, yeah. who has been uh, you know voting with the Republicans on impeachment issues. Right, but I think he is a Democrat. But he would, assuming he runs, assuming he's reelected, assuming Democrats were to hold a five three, um, it would be. A vote would go for at that point. I'm assuming Colin Peterson would vote for the Democratic president. But what's interesting is each state gets one vote. Right now, the Republicans hold 26. Um, even though Democrats hold a majority of the total House seats, wow. Republicans control overall 26 of the states. And so you could have an even stranger scenario, let's say next year, that if the Democrats still hold the majority in the House, but the Democrats hold or Republicans hold the majority of the of the actual states, you could have Donald Trump win that way. Wow. You know, and I know you you travel <laughs> you travel a lot overseas. How do you begin to explain that one to folks overseas? Well, this is complex. This is this is diff- this is difficult. I mean, this is one of the more frequent topics that I have to talk about when I when I do like talks for the U.S. embassies or the State Department or go to other schools. Is just explain the Electoral College, and it all depends on detail. I mean, I usually just stop with 
270 electoral votes. I talk about it being 50 separate state elections. Um, if people really want to press it, then I can say, okay, now let's talk about the real oddities in terms of if the House has to pick people, if the Senate has to pick the vice president, because this is actually a very, very complex process. And I know even domestically in the United States, um, I've already done, I think, last year and now going to this year, I'll probably do about a half a dozen or a dozen community talks, you know, like to neighborhood organizations or or to, you know, professional associations and just try to explain the electoral college because it I, is, I, I, you're probably going to be really in demand and not that you aren't already. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> right. But and especially given the fact that I, I do envision scenarios where um, it could be the House of Representatives that does it this time, um, because that's again, that's how truly divided wow. we are and how close we are. Right. Well, and, and, you know, one thing that I've noticed, you know, as, as the Democrats sort of slug it out and you've got, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg coming in with all these commercials that are super slick and very well done. You see him getting traction in some polls. You've got the president who, despite all these controversies, despite impeachment, despite, you know, a lot of the controversial issues involving this Iranian this strike in Iraq against the Iranian general. The president is running a really good campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have mentioned this before. I've been so struck by the fact that his people are so organized, that his campaign is so organized and down to the local level where they are repeatedly reaching out to local reporters to see, you know, do you need a surrogate to talk about the president? I I mean, it's it's such a contrast to what happened four years ago when they barely had anything because, right. you know, it was it was sort of almost a campaign that was on the fly. You're, you're right. And I think four years ago, even the president, even Donald Trump, I think, was somewhat surprised that he won. Um, this time, and he wasn't as well prepared. This time, he's, he's very well prepared. And there's a great contrast you're doing here. Michael Bloomberg is doing what we call the air wars, a lot of money in advertising. Um, but what Donald Trump is doing is something... I think even more important. It's called the ground wars. It's organizing. It's getting people out. It's doing what you, you just said here. It's making it known to, let's say, WCCO and says, do you need somebody to come in right. and talk about? Um, that's incredibly important stuff. And that is happening. I, I will tell you on, on a daily basis that they are that organized. Uh, and and I do think it does make a difference that they they are clearly looking at Minnesota. I mean, mm-hmm. they are clearly clearly looking at Minnesota, and I, you know I don't know if it's their thought that Minnesota would be the hedge against if they lose Wisconsin. I suppose that that's that's one theory, but they are clearly looking at picking up Minnesota. Yeah, I think there's two different theories here. One is Minnesota actually in play. I actually do think it is. Um, I think the fact that that he got so close, you know. With, Less than fifty thousand votes. Trump almost won the state, and with, with fact, very with very little effort. Just the effort at the end where he came here. Exactly, yeah. and the fact that in Greater Minnesota he's incredibly popular. So one theory is that the state is actually in play. Theory number two: if you force the Democrats to have to defend Minnesota, a state they never normally have to defend, every dollar you spend to defend Minnesota is a dollar you, you don't spend. You elsewhere. can't spend in Wisconsin. Pennsylvania, Michigan, or Iowa. Yeah. And that's, that, that, that is a good one because I don't see how the Democrats cannot defend Minnesota with the fact that the president exactly. almost won here in 2016 and the fact that he is so organized uh-huh. here. And, and the, the Trump campaign has really done a very good job 
of, of getting organized early and taking that, that huge advantage of incumbency to get organized, to get everything in place, to not take things for granted. And that's really a remarkable, remarkable situation. Bloomberg's candidacy is something that, that I think is is really fascinating. And, and you know, we do have to take a break coming up here uh, for weather. But I, I would like to talk to you about that because one of the things that, you know, I was reading about the next debate, January 14th, and of course, uh, Bloomberg is not in it. And then I realized he can't be in any of the debates because he's not taking any contributions. Mm -hmm. And and in order to get into these debates, so far there are only going to be five candidates in the next Democratic debate. Uh, And they are Joe Biden. uh, They are uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And it's there's they've upped the the. Guidelines for getting in, you have to get more and more people contributing to your campaign, more and more people contributing from different states, and you have to get uh, higher levels in all of these polls, which, you know, Amy Klobuchar, credit to her, has done that. But Michael Bloomberg is not taking any public contributions. He is self-funding his entire campaign, and he's spending a lot of money, if you can judge by the commercials. And he is doing, he is seeing some return on that investment. Um, We are going to take a quick break here. We're going to give you some weather. And when we come back, we're going to chat with David Schultz about Michael Bloomberg. And and what about this strategy? Is it going to work? Has this kind of thing ever been really attempted before at this level? Uh, And does he have a chance when it comes to Super Tuesday? Keep it here. You're listening to News Talk 830. All right, we are back. Esme Murphy, along with producer Jonathan Lowe and the one and only Professor David Schultz. Uh, let's talk Michael Bloomberg. He had actually doubled his best in, in one of the polls in the short time he's been in the race at 11 percent in one of the national polls. He is saturating the airwaves, certainly in this state and other states. Uh, is he going to be able to pull this off? And he won't be in the debates, which I think a lot of people – We'll expect to see him in the debates, and I think we might be a little surprised that he won't be in the debates. He won't be in any of the debates if he continues to not take in any kinds of contributions from the public. Does he have a chance? I never want to say never for two reasons. First, remember, people thought that Donald Trump had no chance four years ago. Exactly, especially after the, the Access Hollywood tape. Exactly, and and so pe- so you never want to say never. And two, uh, again, sounding um, like distant history, there was another, I suspect, billionaire whose name Ross Perot, um, who spent heavily back in the 90s, um, and he wound up getting, what, 18% of the popular vote running as a, as a third-party candidate. Um, and I just mention this because uh, he also didn't have significant ground game, um, started off with simply spending an incredible amount of money on advertising, was running at a time when there was disenchantment 1992 with the two major candidates bill clinton and with george and with um george bush senior and think about it now what if we have a scenario where um perhaps maybe the democrats aren't completely thrilled or many democrats aren't completely thrilled with the top four or top five candidates and are looking for somebody else Getting into going into Super Tuesday, where nobody has really emerged as a clear front runner, um, I wouldn't completely rule it out. Um, now, also throw in one more parallel here. You know, when people are saying, "Well, why would somebody vote for a billionaire?" Well, we have a billionaire who yes. is a president right now. So, so again, I, my simple statement is: don't rule it out. Um, the we live in a culture that's far more 
driven by the media that I think we oftentimes want to give credit to, um, especially when it comes to politics. And that name recognition may may, may do it with all those ads. And they're right. And, 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 right, and, they're, they're good ads. And they're they're good ads. They're positive ads. I, they're very well produced. Um, they got his name out there. Um, in terms of the Iowa caucuses, you mentioned it, there doesn't seem to be a clear front runner. One of the things that's a little startling is that there hasn't been more polling. We haven't really had a, a major poll in some time in just Iowa. What do you think about that? Well, there's a piece that um, I did four years ago, um, and I talked to several different people about this, including people at the Pew Center, um, the Pew Research Center, which is a wonderful group. And we were talking about the economics of polling and, and a good poll, a, a good, good basic poll that would give us good information, including in the state of Iowa, is going to start at the cheapest level at probably fifty to sixty to seventy thousand um, dollars. And I just mention that because when you traditionally used to think about who would do polling, it would be what a newspaper or maybe a television station. Right. Um, I don't, you know, not too many newspapers and television stations have fifty to a hundred thousand dollars just sitting around, yes, sitting around to do a poll. And, and so, so I think that's that's part of what's going on at this point right now is that it is incredibly expensive to do good polls um, that you're probably and our listeners are probably very similar to me um, I rarely pick up my landline um, right. um, and even on my cell phone um, I I oftentimes don't pick up if I don't recognize a number most polls to be able to, to that, are, that are considered effective now need to do about 80% cell phone, about 20% landline. Very few people pick up landlines. Getting accurate cell phone information is very complicated. For example, if I want to do a poll in Iowa, and I, I don't even remember what the area codes are in Iowa at this point, so pardon me, um, but we're going to have a lot of people in Iowa who live there who may not even have an Iowa area code on their cell phone. Absolutely. Um, and even and those who do have area codes for Iowa may not live in Iowa anymore. So pinpointing and matching cell phones to numbers to addresses become also exceedingly expensive. So it's just become a very complex process that's very costly because the more people you have to call to do an accurate poll, the more the costs go up. And so I think it's the cost factor more than anything right. else. So we're, so we're all speculating. We're all speculating on where we think Iowa is right now, on top of which caucuses are harder to predict than, than primaries. Right. I, I did see one um, analysis that said that, you know, uh, certainly Senator Amy Klobuchar has done very well in debates. In some of these polls, she's ticked up uh, certainly a few percentage points. She had a record... Uh, Hall in terms of fundraising at $11 million, which is still way below uh, Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and, and Biden. But um, I was reading about the fact that, that in for many Iowans, she's, she apparently is a second choice. Right. And uh, this article pointed out that that wasn't such a bad thing because if there are – if the candidates don't have a certain threshold at the caucus, then they have to switch to another candidate. Right. So – Maybe that'll help someone like an Amy Klobuchar who insists that she is getting momentum and is gaining momentum. It's possible that she really is. Uh, but what we have now are polls from early December that show Pete Buttigieg ahead. And it's not clear if those are still reflecting that. I mean, we've had people cycle in and cycle out of dominance in that particular state. Correct. If we, if we 
look at the most recent polls that we have, we've got the top four, you know, who are Buttigieg, Biden, Warren, and Sanders. Klobuchar comes in a relatively distant fifth, um, but yes. she's fifth. Um, and I just mention this because the top four right now um, would have enough um, support, assuming that based on the polls from the last few weeks, would have enough to be viable so that assuming everything played out the way it is, Klobuchar would probably still come in at about fifth. And this raises a really interesting question now, is that given how much she's placed upon Iowa um, in terms of of her strategy, um, if she were to come in fifth, um, what damage does it do to her campaign? And I mention this because if we also look at other polling nationwide, you know, right after we have Iowa, we have New Hampshire, then we have Nevada, then we have South Carolina. And in those three states, um, she's polling um, with, far, with, with numbers significantly worse than in Iowa. Now, I know she's hoping that Iowa becomes a kind of a springboard, but I'll throw it back to you and ask, so if she comes in fifth, what impact do you think that has? I, I, you know, I don't think it... it... I don't think it does much for her at all. Yes. But if if she comes in second or a close third, mm-hmm. I, I think that could be a game changer for her. And I think that that's what her folks are, are counting on. And I think I think the Klobuchar campaign thinks that's a realistic possibility. And I, and I guess it, it probably is with so much up in the air. Yeah, she, and that's what she needs. I think you're right. You know, politics, especially Iowa, is oftentimes not about absolute victory, but about relative expectations or beating expectations. Right. Right now, the prediction is fifth. Um, I'm still not sure fourth does it for her, um, but I think she has to be probably the top right. three. Now, if she does edge out um, a fourth, the fourth place person at this point, I think that does does help right. her a little right. bit. But I do think she's got to crack one, two, or three. And I think really to have a viable campaign, probably it has to be two. And, and you know, I, I agree with you. It's the expectations game. And, and with that particular theory, what, what you just mentioned, I also think that in the Iowa caucuses, if Joe Biden doesn't win or Pete Buttigieg doesn't win, I think they will be badly hurt. And, and I think if, if Joe Biden has a poor showing, like a third, that that could really spell trouble for him. I think you're right. And this be, this takes us back to 2008, where the expectation was that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, and she came in third behind um, both Barack Obama and John Edwards. You know, I mean, coming in second was a blow, but to come in third was really devastating for her. Um, and I think the same thing here. Um, Biden and Buttigieg, actually, I'm going to say um, B- Biden and Buttigieg, and even Warren, I think all three of them have to win it. Um, I really do, um, because it, the expectation is going to be that Warren um, um, is going to is, is, should win New Hampshire, although it's going to be a, a tough battle, you know, you know, with Bernie Sanders. Well, you know, they're the, both sandwiched on either side of New Hampshire. Yeah. Exactly. You know, New Hampshire is the bologna between two slices of bread between yeah. the other two. You know, but but. Um, and I think Sanders has enough money, and he's going to keep going for a while. But I really do think that that three of those candidates, in fact, well, again, I'll throw all, all four of them, including Klobuchar, 
Those four have to do very well in Iowa. Sanders can take a hit um, given the money and given, I think, some of his strategy. But those other four have to, all four of them have to finish in the top two. You know, one thing, you know, in terms of reading about Senator Klobuchar's push in Iowa, and she has spent a lot of time there, probably more than any other candidate, she did go to every single county in Iowa, including the Republican counties, and she's doing that in New Hampshire, too. Uh-huh. And I couldn't help but think that's a pretty smart idea uh-huh. because there have to be some Republicans. I mean, this president is such a non-traditional president and such a non-traditional Republican that he's obviously attracted people who are not Republicans to him. He's attracted independents, but he's got to have alienated some people who are sort of more mainstream Republicans. Is it possible that that's a strategy uh, that obviously Amy Klobuchar is embracing, but that other candidates will try and embrace as well uh, going forward towards the general election? Well, general election, I think that that makes sense for the caucuses and primaries, less so. I know people have always talked for years back when we, you know, with our caucuses, too, or even, let's say, our primaries, that, that there's always sort of the, the myth of the malicious voter, the Democrat who goes over and votes for the weakest Republican or vice versa. And there's actually very little evidence of that. Um, given, in, in Iowa, given the fact that the participation in the caucuses is 5 to 7 percent, 8 percent of the population, the people who show up to the caucuses for both Republican and Democratic side – they're the hardcores. I mean, these are these are the hardcore. Is the it hardcore. really? Is the turnout really that low in Iowa? Yeah, just five to seven percent. Yeah. After yeah. all this fuss, it's five to seven percent of people in Iowa who are deciding this. Right, of a state that's actually a fairly small population. Also, yeah. I mean, I was going to say even in Minnesota. You know, again, we're going to be needing to talk more about this in the next few weeks. The fact that we're shifting to a presidential primary uh, as opposed to a caucus, and I think we need. I do think we need to talk about that at some point. But even even in our best years, you know, for our, our presidential caucuses, we were looking at less than 10% of the eligible voters showing up for the caucuses. And so the caucuses are hugely, um, let's say, unrepresentative um, in terms of the general voting population, although they're pretty representative, maybe, of the of, of, of the of the parties that they represent. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was, I, I thought with all the attention, um, you know, in Iowa, you know, people meeting candidates, not just meeting, you know, one candidate, but meeting maybe all of them or like three or four of them shaking their hands, going to a, a meeting that, that perhaps the turnout would be even higher. But I think that that's something that uh, has yet to be seen. Uh, in terms of Minnesota, let's talk about that. Um, Minnesota and its primary. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more with David Schultz on the fact that Minnesota has a presidential primary that is part of Super Tuesday, a day March 3rd, when I believe a third of the delegates will be selected for the convention. It is 846 in the Twin Cities right now. Esme Murphy chatting with Professor David Schultz. Let's talk about that Minnesota primary. Primary, folks, not a caucus on March 3rd will be part of Super Tuesday, uh, a day when 14 states will go to the polls, and a lot of delegates are going to be decided. I think it's about a third, isn't it? That's correct. It's about a third. And so let's talk about the primary, because this is going to be the first time we've had a presidential primary since the early 1970s. And this is, this is pretty significant, because keep in mind, 
unlike the caucuses where many people know you would have to show up, what, about 7 o'clock at night, and it would be only taking place at night. This is going to be a primary, which means it's going to be an all-day election, the normal election hours that you see in Minnesota, which I think is about 6 in the morning until, is it 6 in the morning, or is it 7, 7 in the morning, I think it is, till 8 o'clock at night. I'm forgetting the exact starting time in the morning, but it's going to be all day. Um, additionally, because it's it's, it's a primary, uh, there's going to be what? Um, early voting. So people are going to be able to early vote in the primary, too. So I think... Uh, those- starting on January 17th, folks. Yes. You're actually going to be able to vote in the presidential primary. That's right. Uh, and what's interesting is, technically, then, we actually can cast the first votes. Right. Isn't and, that cool? Yes. Minnesota actually cast the first votes in the 2020 um, presidential selection process. So we actually beat Iowa by, what, 13, by 14 days or something. Right. So in other words, the early voting, which is a, a huge amount of time because of the need to make sure we can get all of our ballots to those who are serving overseas and have them return them to us, it starts on January 17th. You'll be able to vote for president in here in Minnesota in the Minnesota presidential primary. That's right. Right. Now, the other thing that people need to understand also about this, which is going to be interesting, and I don't know what impact it's going to have, by the way, is that when you show up to vote in the primary, you're going to, and it's only, only the Democrats and Republicans are having primaries, by the way. The other minor parties, the other major parties in the state um, aren't holding, aren't going to be on the ballot for the primaries. But when you show up, you're going to have to indicate, do you want a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot? And the reason why this is going to be important is that the parties will know whether you selected a Democrat or Republican, but that information won't be available to the general public. Right. Or, or so they say. So they say. Although I suspect there's going to be there's that's either going to be probably challenged in court, or I suspect at some point um, people's names are going to get sold from the party to somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. But I just mention this because I know when people go, for example, to the regular primaries in Minnesota, you know, like in back right. in August, you don't have to indicate and say I'm doing Democrat or Republican, and and, and I don't know at this point, how this is going to play with Minnesotans in terms of having to say, I'm declaring Democrat or Republican. Many states, for example, um, like, for example, the state of New York, to vote in a primary, you actually have to designate and say, I'm a Democrat or right. I'm a Republican. Right, right. And, and, and you have to do it weeks beforehand. Yes. Here you have to do it at the time that you vote. I, I do think that's interesting. I have spoken uh, with the Secretary of State, Steve Simon. He says he's actually going to bring legislation at, at right when the legislative session begins, which I believe is February 13th, to, to actually overturn that. So you wouldn't have to do that or else the list wouldn't go there. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what his specific proposal is, but he's opposed to that. And so, but that's cutting it pretty close, though. It is cutting it pretty close. And there will all, already have been all these people that will have voted. Exactly. So I suspect it may not have an impact this this time. Um, and I know the parties don't like this idea because they actually want to know what who's voting. You know, in the same way that when it's the caucuses, they know if Jane Doe, you know, or John Doe shows up to a caucus because they use the caucuses as a way of what fundraising, party building, and they want to use the primaries for that purpose also. 
So this, this is not going to be an easy move, you know, for the Secretary of State to change this. But again, this is going to be interesting because and we've talked about this before. You know, Minnesotans are very private people, and, right. and I'm not sure how the idea of having to designate and say you are a Democrat or Republican or casting one way or the other, what the impact is going to be. But the only thing you're voting on is the presidential race. Exactly. Okay. Um, because there are other parties as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got the two marijuana parties. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and there will also be another primary yeah. in August when you'll be voting for, you know, different House positions and that kind of thing. So so there, there still will be another primary. But I agree with you. I don't think people are going to like it. It's interesting. Um, I, I was there when um, Ken Martin, the chair of the DFL party, filed his slate of candidates that will be on the primary ballot that Minnesotans will get to decide from. And he said that, that he doesn't like the idea of the parties knowing or getting these lists of this because he said – in his opinion, the Democrats are so much better organized than Republicans that it's giving Republicans sort of an advantage they don't have. He says that, you know, we, we've got all the Democrats figured out, but Republicans are, don't have as good an organization as we do. And it's going to help them more than it's going to help us, which is an interesting point. It is, except I, I'm not sure if the Republicans are as disorganized as the Democrats think they are. <laughs> uh, I think the other side always wants, like to make, <laughs> always wants to make that claim there. But but. Even with this concern there about the designation of of party, again, if I can do a parallel here, you know, when we're getting about seven to eight percent of our of our voters to show up for the caucuses, right next door in Wisconsin, which has a primary, they've been getting about thirty-eight to forty percent of their voters, and so I have to think um, that no matter what, we're going to see a dramatic uptick in terms of the number of people who participate in the primaries, which on balance is, is good. We ought to have more people involved. Right, right. And and it's too, you know, I mean, I was, and I think I've shared that with you, I've shared it with, with some listeners too. I actually covered the Democratic caucuses uh, in 2016, which went overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders. And I was assigned to a school in St. Paul, and I can't remember the name of the school, it was so crowded that people actually fainted, yeah. and, and and for people who were disabled, um, it, it was almost impossible to get in. No, you're right. I, I mean, it was it was a terrible situation. You know, for people who had small children, I mean, it was just something that was just not conducive to, to participating in in democracy because it was just completely. I mean, it was great that all those people turned out, but it was it was way more than anyone expected. Right, we had traffic jams in some places, you know, across the Twin Cities and across Minnesota for people trying to show up all at the same place at the same time. Yeah, it was not good. Right, and, and you're absolutely right in the fact that we have people who works who worked second shift, who had childcare duties and so forth, who who were ill couldn't make it, and so the fact that we have all day. And we have the early voting is good. And we've talked about this before. You know, one of the groups of people who most takes advantage of early voting are are women with children, working women with children. Right. Well, and it's completely understandable. So I think I think that that will be I I think I think everyone agreed that there was a problem. I was at the Democratic caucus, but I think Republican caucuses were also jammed. Because remember, there were all those candidates as well. So it just both sides were struggling to handle, um, you know, the, the turnout or whatever. Remember Marco Rubio? That should be a good tri- tri- trivia question. That's right. Who won the Republican caucuses in 2016 in Minnesota? That's the only state he won, I think. I, th- I think it's the only state he won. Uh, Marco Rubio won. Um, and it's uh, 
you know, it's really amazing when you think back on, on that volatile campaign. But so we will have that. The, the first contest, though, it, it, it remains to be seen if somebody can pull a maneuver. Uh, and the person who's probably best poised to do that maybe isn't Amy Klobuchar, a surprise. Right. Um, anybody else, I mean, she's the only one who's been sort of inching up and moving sort of in one direction. Mm-hmm. Which credit to her. I mean, she's really done better than all, you know, all but five, four or five of these folks. That's right, yeah. She's held her own very well. Um, and she has some money to do things um, at this, you know, at this point. And it's really going to come down to now what the next, you know, the next 30 days, because, you know, we, again, as, men- as we mentioned you know, a little while ago here, we've got three or four candidates who all really need to win Iowa or do very, very well or exceed expectations. Um, and she maybe is not quite as placed as well as the other four, but again, We've had lots of different people who have done very well um, at various stages in, in Iowa as the voters are giving them a look, and maybe she's going to peak, you know, in the well, next yeah, and month. It, we, we've we've had people, you know, circling up and then circling back down, and that's what she says is is that that she's peaking at the right time. Well, she may just be right. We right well, and the proof of the pudding will be thirty days. <laughs> right in 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 thirty days, it, it is it is remarkable that it is all happening that fast. On on top of this sort of tableau of of extraordinary world events, and uh, you and I will be uh, on top of it. So, yeah. thank you so much for joining me tonight. As always, you, you do it a fabulous job. Thank you very much, and good night to all. Good night to all, David Schultz, and you can check out his blog. Schultz's take, uh, always insightful, always great analysis. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t